Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Dana. So, alternative protein or fake meat. Have you tried it? Uh, Yes. And how was it? It was great. I've had Beyond Burgers, Impossible Burgers. I even had some delightful sausages that weren't actually sausages just earlier this week. I am what you would call a flexitarian. So somebody who generally avoids meat, but will still buy it and eat it from time to time. I once went a whole year without any red meat at all. And I must say the thing that I missed the most that year was a hamburger. So when I started seeing fake burgers showing up on menus and at the grocery store, and I'm not talking about a veggie patty, but something that actually resembles a hamburger, I was pretty excited about it. So yeah, I take it you like these? They cut the mustard, no pun intended. (laughs) Okay. So years ago, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I would go to this vegetarian restaurant, Sunflower in Vienna, Virginia. If you know it, you know it. It's a fantastic place. But it always struck me as odd, the attempts at replicating meat with like things like seitan and the like. I thought it really wasn't worth the effort. I still don't. It's certainly not good enough to be worth the effort. But I've tried the Impossible Burger and all that, and it seems fake meat has really come a long way since then. And that's what we're here to talk about today. This alternative to animal protein, be that poultry, fish, beef, or pork, and what it means to be fake meat, whether made of plants or actual animal tissues grown in the lab. So today we speak with Hugh Bromley, who looks at consumer trends here at BNEF, and he's going to talk to us about a report titled Alternative Proteins, Fake It Till You Make It. The full report is available on the Bloomberg Terminal at bnef.com or on BNEF's mobile app. And as always, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer, which will play at the end of today's show. Now let's hear about alternative proteins. I'm Dana Perkins. And I'm Mark Taylor, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Hi, Hugh. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be back. So the title of the note that we're talking about today, it's about, well, we're going to call it fake meat, but alternative proteins. Fake it till you make it. So I want to know, how fake is it? I have a friend who actually refers to these um, these alternative hamburger patties that they actually have in the United States as frankenfood. So does it resemble the real food that we interact with? Or is it something that I, I wouldn't even recognize due to the processing? Look, I, I've had to try a bunch of these through, uh, you know, what you call market research, I guess, for this this report, right? And, you know, it, it's all it's all subjective. It's all going to be in individual opinion. But um, I mean, I, I think the best ones I have tried, the, the best companies at faking meat and the best ones at cooking it afterward, probably do the same job as really poor quality beef right now you know they might get better over time but you know, no certainly no one's doing a you know, that i've tried has done a great job of uh, of replicating you know a, a great hamburger uh and and no one's anywhere close on, on on replicating a steak or anything like that 
But what are they actually made of? Like, what's it comprised of? Most of the stuff you out there on your supermarket shelves at the moment are, are plant-based, right? So they'll typically use either a soy protein or a yellow pea protein. So basically you're growing that crop, you're extracting the protein from it. You're basically running it through a big, you know, macerator and eventually extruding it, mixing it with other ingredients and extruding it like you would pasta or cereal into a form factor we recognize. Uh, you know, something that looks like, like ground beef or if you turn into a patty, it might kind of look like if you squint, you know, a, a chicken fillet. I was just thinking back when I used to go to vegetarian restaurants and they would have fake meat back in the day it was made out of like seitan and stuff like that. I don't know. It was just not good. My conclusion back then was, uh, you know what? Let's skip it. Just give me the veg. I'm good. Oh, look, I, don't, I don't disagree. There's been products out there for decades, right? At least, or, or millennia, if you count things like tofu. There's been alternatives, pro, protein alternatives to animal meats out there for, for, for people that don't eat it. What's different about this, what's different about plant-based meat and the culture, the lab-grown meats that are coming, is that they're not trying to offer a new product to vegetarians and vegans. Really, they want to win over the omnivores, or at least the flexitarians, but, but, but ideally the omnivores, right? The people who eat meat. It's got to look, taste, feel, smell just like meat to do that, because otherwise you know I myself and you will have the, that, that response just give me a vegetable give me meat don't try and trick me I mean this was 15 years ago too and you know I'm sure technology has improved I've had a what beyond burger or whatever and I, I thought it was good it was, it was great I, I'm really excited for this actually to happen I, I I would call myself one of the the flexitarians or I never even heard that word but I'd say that's what I am you are the target market I, I think I am, actually. Yeah, definitely. You and me both. So this is a bit of a departure for BNF. Why did we actually choose to write about alternative proteins? It's a good question, but BNF's been evolving for a long time now, right? We're, we're no longer just a clean energy research firm. We moved into transport and into kind of industry decarbonization. And I guess the common narrative here is that we have these century-old uh, industries and supply chains that are being threatened and disrupted by, by new incumbents. And those new incumbents are, are, are enabled by technology, you know, whether that be falling prices of solar panels or, or, or electric vehicles, or whether in this case it's, you know, the potential cost reductions of making plant-based or, or lab-grown meats that'll disrupt, you know, some of the biggest air-traded commodities on the planet, meat. And the other thing that leads that's common with all of them is, is, is massive emission reduction potential if this happens and if, if the, the companies offering plant-based meat and cultured meats get it right. So you mentioned just now cultured meat. And actually, at the very beginning of December, I saw an announcement that Singapore approved the very first lab-grown meat to be sold for regular people like you and me to consume it. So my question is about that. How is it made? And, and what are some of the concerns around the lab-grown and cultured meat that have made it kind of latest to the market? It hasn't been on the shelves for 15 years. It's been on the shelves for maybe 15 days. <laughs> It's really interesting stuff and exciting stuff that we finally have a product on the market or coming to market soon in Singapore. Lab-grown meats, cultured meats, clean meats are sometimes called, very different to plant-based. So you haven't tried this stuff before. It's only been tasted in kind of experimental settings. Uh, and what it is, is basically it's, it's real meat. It's just grown in, in, inside, inside an incubator, inside a machine. So it's where you're basically extracting animal cells from a live animal or from a, from a placenta growing it in a machine by feeding it this kind of concoction of kind of what you call food culture 
and basically exercising that inside this machine to make it grow like muscle would grow, muscle and, and, and fat tissue. And then when that's, you know, when it's finished growing inside this machine, you're, you're scraping it out and, you know, and using it like you would ground beef. Uh, eventually, maybe down the track, you could even grow a, a, an entire fillet inside. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a process that they basically lifted from medical science, not that uncommon at all, but clearly very costly um, and, and clearly new for the food industry. The development in Singapore is a company called Eat Just. They're certainly at the forefront of, of the industry. They're working across a whole bunch of different animals. The, the development in, in Singapore looks to just apply to chicken right now, but it's, it's the first step in bringing these products to market. So when people are talking about potentially growing organs, this is a similar technology they're using to grow the meat that will go on our plates? Yeah, very similar. Obviously, you've got um, you know different cells, different culture. Every animal you grow, it requires a different environment, so different different temperature, different culture. You obviously different cells that you're extracting, and and different timelines as well. But that, that it's it's just the same as what you're seeing in some of those um, in some of those therapeutic or regenerative medicine practices. This feels very futuristic to me. It does. Look, look, it is futuristic. It comes with that futuristic price tag as well. You know, the, the original burgers that were being processed this way were costing something like $100,000 a burger, supposedly. There's certainly companies out there that, are t- you know, you're still paying kind of hundredfold of premium for, of what you would for, for animal meats. But there are companies out there that certainly, you know, hope to bring that down to something that's, you know, more, more like tenfold in the next few years. Really costly. No reason why those costs couldn't come down. Not, you know, there, there, there's many reasons to believe the cost should come down just like we kind of I said before you know very similar to solar panels or batteries in EVs you know you've got this cost curve you've got a a process that's infinitely scalable you just need to make make more of these incubators you know put more cells inside machines and you get more and more product a lot of the cost at the moment comes from the culture so you you have specialized firms that basically brewing up this culture to to feed your, your cell lines and grow the meat that would need to come down but uh, it's got to have a learning rate behind it. It's way too early to even put a number on what that learning rate might be right now. But, you know, it's, it's a very scalable, repeatable process that, 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 that should come down. And you contrast that to, you know, a very inefficient sector, putting animals out to pasture for, for months or, or, or years at a time to grow meat you know, and, and waiting on the metabolic cycle to, to, to work, to grow an animal, to then butcher it, to then waste a, you know, a decent chunk of the carcass. There is a whole lot of waste there that, that, that can be undercut by a uh, futuristic mechanical automated process. How is it going to be rolled out in these first adopters in, in Singapore? You know, is it going to be high-end restaurants with people waiting out the door to get a shot at this? Or is it going to be, you know, through more, I guess, fast food chains or places that'll sell this? Look, I imagine in Singapore with this cultured chicken, it's got to be high-end. There is this disconnect between costs and price when it comes to plant-based meat. Yes, it's priced at a premium, but cost, you could argue, should be the same or lower than animal meat. When it comes to cultured meat, it's costly and it's pricey, and it's probably going to stay that way for a while. So that there's the barrier there of kind of trying to find enough people willing to sample it at that cost, and then, you know, where do you grow from there? Every country you go into after Singapore, you need to jump, you know, really strict and high regulatory hurdles. You know, in the US, we're going through that process right now. And because it's a meat product, but also an agricultural product, you're basically regulated twice by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and by the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture. So all of which already have processes in place for regulating livestock, for regulating meat and butchering, and for regulating basically all food 
food supply chains and you've got to meet all those existing hurdles, even though your product might look and behave very differently. So that's specifically in the United States. How about in other parts of the world? Does the FDA have the most stringent standards and therefore they translate over to other countries? Or, you know, I've had a Beyond Burger here in London. I mean, there definitely is an equivalent here in the UK. What's the view on these products in other parts of the world? I think you see these companies kind of pushing for some sort of consistency amongst different regions and how they regulate it, but it is an entirely different process right now. If you want to go into the EU, you need to go through the EU regulator. If you want to go to the US, you go for the USDA and FDA. They're pushing for consistency, but at the same time, they really want to protect their, their secret sauce, protect their processes, protect, protect their recipes. So they can't be open book with their competitors that push for industry standards across the world because they're trying to be market leaders at the same time. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So let's talk about adoption of alternative proteins, both kinds, the plant-based and then maybe someday the cultured meat coming to a plate near you. In this research note, you talked a lot about the United States. And my question also has to do with whether or not that is the primary market for these products at this point in time and where the real growth is coming from. Because what immediately comes to my mind is, you know, the consumer preferences in Asia, for example, are really gravitating increasingly towards animal proteins and meats with rising GDPs and, well, I mean, the maybe tastes are changing as well. Can you give us some color on that? There's a couple of questions in there, right? But first of all, where, where's this stuff being trialed today? Who, who's eating it? If you look at the leaders, companies like Beyond Meat or, or Impossible Foods and where they're actively marketing and selling their products, it is certainly biased toward the Western Hemisphere. They, they target North America, US and Canada are target primary markets. Certainly the European Union and UK in the preferences are changing there. There's healthy decisions being made. And then some other places like, like, like Australia's on their radar as well. You do see a lot of announcements coming out of Asia. Sometimes it's the same firms moving into Asia. A landmark deal with Starbucks recently struck in China. But you also see a lot of local firms as well, local startups getting traction in places like Japan and Korea and China and in Singapore. We've seen these firms pop up. And these are, you know, countries, they're the more, I guess, the more, they're the wealthier Asian countries, but still with changing consumer preferences and servicing the greater Asia market with, with growing meat appetite. The challenge there, I think, will be one is meat attachment levels. And outside of China and the countries, you know, Ma Malaysia, Singapore, meat attachments are not all that high. Meat consumption in the past has not been all that great. And what you see when you look at kind of meat consumption over decades and generations, as an economy becomes wealthier, certainly the rate of meat intake, the annual per, you know, the per capita intake of meat increases. But if you start from a very low base, you don't catch up to the US, you don't catch up to Western Europe, you just grow from your low base. If you start at a high base, you know, now I'm thinking kind of Latin America, maybe you will catch up to the US on a per capita basis, but they're small populations, small but, but um, populations with, with, with growing wealth. So really the opportunity might, is huge from a population perspective in those countries, but chances are they, one, don't have the meat attachment because they haven't had as much meat in their diets historically. If, as their meat appetite grows, it's just not going to be the same level as what you see in, in, kind of in the West. 
I mean, and this has a lot to do with cultural factors. When you say meat attachment, I mean, it's, it has to do with like the recipes that somebody knows, right? So if I'm going to make something for dinner, I'm going to go to a recipe that maybe my mom taught me, and that may not necessarily involve animal protein. Are there other things that come into play here that maybe I don't know about? There's certainly trends happening in meat. Let's, let's put plant-based and cultured meat aside for a moment, but just the big trends happening in meat right now are, you know, Consumers are making healthier decisions. They're switching from red meat, you know, beef and lamb, and to some extent pork, to chicken and seafood. You know, that's a trend that's happening already. Or they're eating smaller portions in Europe, for example, and in some cases the US. So they're making those healthy decisions regardless of alternatives that are, that are available to them. And certainly they're looking for convenience. So yeah, you're seeing you know, the majority of meat, I think, in meat for most animals being consumed in you know, pre-packaged, pre-portioned individual cuts. It's actually quite rare now to go and take a whole chicken home in, in, in many of these countries or bring home a whole, whole cut of um, lamb or, or beef. You know, people are looking for convenience. And that's great news if you are a supplier of alternative meat because it means you don't need to make your product look like an animal. You need to make it look like the regurgitated product that comes out at the end. Can you tell us a bit more about who's involved and who's producing these alternative proteins and who's investing in them? So people are generally familiar with the real market leaders here in Possible Foods and Beyond Meat. And those firms have got enormous traction off one, you know, IPOs, and secondly, through announcements and partnerships with fast food chains in many cases, with McDonald's, with Starbucks, with Burger King. But there are others out there. I mean, certainly if you sit in the UK, you'd be familiar with corn. It's been around for, for decades now. Good Catch Foods doing seafood, you know, prime roots, alpha foods. There's lots out there. These are the brand names that are selling the alternatives. But actually what's interesting is, is what's behind them right and some are still venture backed you know the top six players here have raised about two and a half billion dollars since 2011 a lot of that's come from venture you know from really big name venture as well so richard branson bill gates jeff bezos jay-z serena williams really broad pool of venture that's, that's backing these companies i guess more recently we've seen a wave of acquisitions and internal business units being started by massive food conglomerates you know kellogg's has a stake here maple foods nestle Kraft Heinz. they're all getting in on this space um, early, really, um, but before we see massive uptake. Okay, so you just mentioned Serena Williams, and I can't help but immediately think, you know, she's a professional athlete. She has got to have an extremely healthy diet, and she's looking at this, and she may have had the same thoughts that I originally did when I went to take a bite into my first Beyond Burger, which is, oh, it's made of plants, so therefore it must be healthier. Is that the case? It's complicated, right, to start with. So certainly when you ask people why they would choose or become interested in plant-based meat, the most common reason they cite is health. And then there's other attributes like environmental, you know, lower emissions or land use or water, you know, animal welfare they might care about. But health is certainly number one. Firstly, what's interesting is if you are concerned by health, there's a greater chance you'll just eat less meat than you'll, you'll eat plant-based meat. So there's complicating factor number one. But secondly, let's talk about the health of plant-based meat. And it's really debatable as to whether it's healthier or not. You know, in many cases, you'll see that plant-based meat has higher fat content, not necessarily saturated fat content, but higher fat content than meat, lower protein content, and depending on how you look at it, you know, higher sodium. What's really complicated about this stuff is when you go and buy some plant-based meat off the shelf at, at Tesco or your local supermarket, it's already been mixed with all these other ingredients to make it kind of a, a final product. So it's already loaded with the sodium or the rest of it. You go and buy a container of, of mints off the shelf next to it, and it's not. It's a raw ingredient. So quite often consumers are comparing kind of a raw ingredient with a processed in ingredient, the, the, the plant-based. 
When you start comparing plant-based products like burger patties and sausages to meat burgers and sausages, so no longer comparing ingredients to products, we're comparing products to products, then it starts to look a little bit better. Still the protein content is lower, still the fat content can be higher, but suddenly the sodium would worry a whole lot of consumers, tends to balance out. Okay, so we've spent a lot of time already today talking a lot about this in terms of ground beef. And this raises another point around what these alternative proteins actually are, what they're looking to mimic. So we're talking about what we've got. You mentioned sausages. So we're talking pork, beef, chicken. I think I've seen a tofurkey in the past, but maybe that doesn't fall into the scope here. And then also fish. If you could give us a little bit of insight into what this fish is like and kind of what the potential uptake is of that. Sure. So if you can name an animal, chances are there's a fake version out there. Most of the attention to date has been around ground beef products. I think one, it's because there is that's where the most health concern lies. Secondly, it's because it's actually it's pretty easy to replicate. You know, it's already highly processed. So therefore, you know, you've mashed up all your vegetables, all your plants into this paste and, and arrive at something that you know isn't too dissimilar to, to ground beef. And thirdly, I guess there is that environmental impact as well. Beef results in a whole lot more emissions than these other livestock animals do. But that's why they get attention and hype has been around beef to date. But if you look at what's available on the shelf and you look at kind of sales by value out there, and it broadly aligns with meat sales. You know, about a third of it is beef in the US. About a quarter of it is, is, is fake chicken. Nearly a quarter of it is fake pork and fake bacon. Uh, and then there's kind of this mix of other stuff. And that other stuff you write includes fish, includes turkey, includes duck, and often nondescript kind of, you know, here's some fake meat, not given an animal name. Fish is a really interesting one. Actually, seafood more broadly is really interesting. I've seen fake shrimp, fake prawns, fake fish out there. And it's interesting because from a plant-based perspective, sure, you're basically doing it the same way. You're mashing together proteins, adding some different ingredients to make it seem more like, like fish or seafood than, than others. But when it comes to cultured meats, it starts to get really interesting, really strange because fish is, is a cold-blooded animal and it's the only cold-blooded animal we, we, we listed there in terms of you know animals that humans consume. It's actually much easier to grow in an artificial environment. It's much less energy intensive. It can be faster. So you, you can incubate these as long as you have the settings right. You can grow them in, inside these artificial um artificial environments for uh, potentially a lower cost than you could for, for any of these other you know, farmed uh, livestock. The complicating factor here is that fish are not growing. You know, they're caught in almost every, you know, basically every any country in the world. There's no massive supply constraint apart from overfishing. Um, and, and, and which so is pretty big. Which, which, which is huge. But there's also not the same emissions consequence as you get from beef and from pork. Overfishing problems, definitely. I'd love to solve that. I mean, as a consumer, I am now your target market for the fish. And I also think of diseases associated with farm-grown fish as well. Instead of farm-grown fish, get me some lab-grown fish. You know, what's amazing about fish is most people that cover this stuff don't look at fish because the OECD and IMF and stuff, when they look at meat, they, they ignore fish and seafood. They just think about red meat and poultry, basically, and look at you know appetite over over time. And if you do that, you see economies like Europe peaking out a few years ago in terms of meat consumption per capita and starting to fall now. It's only once you add seafood back on top of that that you realise they're not peaking in their meat consumption; they're just switching to seafood. Um, so there is growing demand there, and it was taking a lot, a lot of data assembly to put this together so that we could look at meat, land-based meats, and seafood in one report and realise actually that the, the trend's totally different common misconception because I definitely 
didn't even think about fish until we got ready to prepare for this show today. So I feel like the other side of it, the other side of the coin has to have something to say about this, right? So the meat and fish lobby, right? They've got to be having something to say about alternatives to their product, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the meat lobby groups are enormous and powerful. They're certainly watching this space. But, you know, a lot of the data is coming from there, you know, in the US, the, the, the Cattlemen's Association saying, look, look, everyone, it's okay. Only 0.3% of meat consumed in 2018 was substitutes. Only half percent of beef. It's, it's, it's small. You know, it's nothing to worry about yet. But Mark, I mean, you, you, were, you were back there for renewals in the, in the mid-2000s as well, right? It's, 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 it's very familiar. You know, the small numbers industry being potentially being disrupted, technology changing all the time, and, and enormous, powerful incumbent lobby groups. I think what's different this time around is that you know, energy companies in any economy were big and they could be disrupted, but we kind of knew the, knew the extent of the, of, of the scope. When you talk about livestock, you know, where, I, where I'm sitting right now in Australia, I think animals, if you sum them all up, are our second or third biggest export. It's, a, it's enormous. Uh, and an enormous, la- you know, enormous from a labour perspective as well in terms of farmers and, and, and uh, agri- rural and agricultural community, enormous in land holdings, enormous in money, enormous in trade, um, enormous in foreign investment. This actually, I think, in many cases is bigger than energy and has more, more powerful voices. Okay, so if you're saying it's that big, then I think you've confirmed that this is a place for some potential huge growth. Those who maybe haven't interacted with this in the past probably will in the future. My question really revolves around how quickly do we see this happening? Because it is consumer-led. I know there's no science to predicting the future, but Hugh, what do you think? Is this going to be ubiquitous in five years, 10 years, 50 years? Yeah, you've really put me on the the spot there, I think, in that it's, there's a lot of really interesting developments happening here, falling costs, all those ingredients I said that could lead to massive disruption. If you look at what's happening today, you know, you've got about 40% of US adults, I don't think it's that different in Western Europe, have tried the stuff. Very few say they don't like it in any way. You know, they're, they're all okay with it. There's lots of repeat uh, sampling, repeat purchasing happening, but but very few are abandoning meat. And if they are, they're, they're not switching to substitutes. They're kind of mixing this into their diet. So it's a small proportion of their diet. Maybe that will grow over time. Maybe the proportion of people that try it will, and eat it will grow over time. But basically where we are today is that we have a number of market leaders who control, who control the industry really, essentially, and they're pricing this at a premium to everything else that's out there. And generally, for most of these animal types, we're talking about kind of twice the cost of, of animal meat at the supermarkets so of retail pricing now. And that really doesn't lend itself to massive growth. Where we've kind of got the Tesla strategy here, that they'd sell this to people who care about these, you know, these aspirational qualities of health, of animal welfare, but not expect a huge amount of growth. I think in that scenario, you know, I've, I've kind of said it's somewhat similar to kind of fair trade products or fair trade coffee. You know, we, we might get, you know, from where we are today, 0.3% of meat to something like, you know, one and a half, maybe, maybe a couple of percent of meat sales over the coming decades. What will really become interesting if the pitch changes. That, that pitch at the moment is justified, by the way. It's justified because there's supply constraints. There's not enough, in particular, pea protein out there to make the addressable market any bigger. But what happens if there is? What happens if these bottlenecks are kind of are, are, are untied or solved? And then it becomes really interesting because this stuff could get really cheap. We could we could be you know grinding up plant-based proteins into paste, reforming it into into meats that if they can get the recipes right and make it seem like meat, could be the same cost or less than animal meats and could have all these aspirational qualities at no you know cost to to consumers. It's free or or even a discount to um, 
to, to, to meet products. And that's where the numbers will really start to move in our view. We started you know, looking at parallels there to things like uh, genetically modified corn at the, at the far extent, you know, that, you know, just a couple of decades has become the, the dominant planted crop across the US. And in the middle, something like diet soda, I think it's a really strong analogy here. With diet soda, you know, it costs the same as soda, when it's sugar-filled soda when you go to the store, but you're getting that aspirational quality of, of health and, asp and health is aspirational, by the way. It's not. It's not universal. Um, I was going to say diet soda, <laughs> healthy. I don't know, Hugh. Yeah, but but, but it, it's it's something that you don't necessarily need. You could just not have soda. Same with meat. You could not have meat, or you could go to the alternative if it's the same price. But if you can get at that same price, you know, you, diet soda suggests that you get kind of 25, 30 percent of the market. Uh, if you can sell a product for the same price as the competitor that's roughly you know, close enough to the real thing to convince, convince consumers to buy it. At the moment, we're certainly on a pathway toward single digit percent of meat sales. Uh, we really need the price to change, maybe the technology costs to come down a bit, but really pricing and marketing strategies to change if you're to see really high adoption levels and, and therefore the emission consequence. So Hugh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. And I think it was a lot of fun just because I personally love the shows where we get to talk about stuff that I'm actually going to get to see and touch. While I do love the electricity that is powering my computer right now, and that is a compelling topic, I am also really interested in what I'm having for lunch today. So you've, you've closed the loop for me. Hugh, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.